Greetings, space enthusiast. You're tuned in to Space Forward. Get ready to embark on an interstellar expedition with forward-thinking space visionaries who are making our space future a reality. We're your hosts, Hussein Bukhari and Kelly Kowalski. Get ready to fly to the moon with space lawyer Antonino Salmeri to find out who owns what on the moon. When astronauts landed on the moon for the first time, they couldn't plant a flag and say, this is now the territory of the United States, right? Because that is forbidden by law. And this is a fundamental rule that is still continue to apply. And that is especially important for lunar governance. Because the real conundrum that we need to solve is how do how are we going to govern a territory that cannot be controlled exclusively by anybody? That is really the fundamental question that we need to answer. So, uh, Hussein, we just heard from Antonino that nobody can actually outright own the moon, per se, or parts of the moon, right? And that's according to the United Nations 1968 Outer Space Treaty. Uh, But things are definitely getting tricky now with all the different players and missions to the moon. Yeah, you know, 100 missions are going to the moon within the next decade. Uh, There's the Artemis missions and China plans to land uh, crew to the moon by 2030. Yeah, 26 countries have signed the Artemis Accords, 27 now with India, plus uh, commercial entities are going. Yeah, we were going to have the first commercial landing on the moon uh, with the Japanese startup iSpace. But unfortunately, they had a hard landing and lost communication with its spacecraft. And there's going to be a lot of upcoming firsts. The first woman on the moon, the first commercial operation on the moon, the first scientific experiment on the moon, the first accident on the moon. And maybe the first conflict on the moon. Uh, Yeah. And so that's why we have asked Antonino Salmeri to join us because we want to know how are we going to mediate the state players, the commercial players. And implement and enforce principles, rules, guidelines. Absolutely. So are you ready to dig into some space law? Most definitely. So Antonino has four advanced degrees in law, which are too long to list right now. Uh, So you can check those details in our show notes. Um, He's a policy analyst at the Open Lunar Foundation, as well as co-chair of the Space Generation Advisory Council. And uh, his book came out this year, Multi-Level Governance on Space Mining. Multi-level, multilateral, multibene with Italian space lawyer Antonino Salmeri. So lunar governance, uh, obviously lunar governance is a very fancy term, but let's not forget that lunar governance is still part of international space law, right? Uh, so the, the basic where we start is the foundation of international space law, which is called the Outer Space Treaty. It's a treaty from 1967, uh, so a little bit before then uh, humans landed on the moon, as you may recall. And the treaty provides fundamental principles. It's even in the title of the treaty. It says, Treaty on Principles Governing the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, Including the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. So that is the foundations that we have. And there are two pillars, let's say, of that treaty um, that are still shaping the activities in outer space to this day, more than 50 years later. One is the freedom of exploration and use. That is the fundamental rule. The golden rule of space is that states are free to explore and use outer space. Now, this freedom, though, is not unlimited or absolute. It is subject to certain limitations. Some of these limitations are already laid down in the first article of the treaty, which is the one that establishes this freedom. And those limitations concern with the fact that space is considered to be, legally speaking, a global common. 
So a, a place outside any sovereign jurisdiction and a place to be shared by all nations. That means that space should not be used for the exclusive interest of only one country, but that space shall be explored and used for the benefit and in the interest of all countries. And here I'm quoting directly from the treaty. On top of that, space has to be explored and used in accordance with international law. This means that space is not a lawless area. It is, in fact, a place where every commitment that states have under international law applies as well, except for when it is explicitly excluded by the treaty or by subsequent amendments. And on top of that, the treaty also says that space has to be explored and used on a basis of equality and without discriminations of any kind. So as you can see, there is a freedom, which means that states do not need permission from each other or from the United Nations to engage in space activities. But at the same time, this doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. In fact, it's a quite limited freedom, uh, if you allow me, in the sense that it gives you fundamental understanding that you, you have to be mindful of others in space. That is the first pillar. And I want to emphasize that this is not should not be taken for granted, right? Because if we look at airspace, which is just a little bit below outer space, the rule is the opposite. The rule is sovereignty. In, in an airspace, a state controls everything. You cannot enter an airspace if you don't have permission from the state. So the fact that for space was chosen the opposite uh, rule, it's not something that was necessarily uh, a given. The second pillar, which is a safeguard of the first one, is the non-appropriation principle. And that is really an exceptional rule that we only have in our space, basically. This rule says that space and celestial bodies are not subject to national appropriation by means of sovereign claims, by means of use, occupation, or any other means. This essentially implies that nobody can exercise, like I said before, exclusive sovereign control over any portion of space. It meant that when astronauts landed on the moon for the first time, they couldn't plant a flag and say, this is now the territory of the United States, right? Because that is forbidden by law. And this is a fundamental rule that is still continued to apply, and that is especially important for lunar governance. Because the real conundrum that we need to solve is, how, do, how are we going to govern a territory that cannot be controlled exclusively by anybody? That is really the fundamental question that we need to answer. And the treaty does not give us the answer to this question. It just gives us the question. It says, here's a space, it's for all of you guys to use, but you have to figure out a way to use it in a different manner than we use on Earth. Because everything we do on Earth is under the exclusive control of a state, one way or the other, right? On the moon, it will not be, it shall not be like that. So Dora's the foundation. There are other fundamental principles. I'm going to touch upon other two of them, which I think are extremely important to keep in mind. Uh, one is the principle of exclusively peaceful purposes. This is set in Article 4, Paragraph 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, and it says very clearly that the moon and other celestial bodies have to be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. This means that, that there cannot be any military activity on the moon directly, it means that the moon or any other celestial body cannot become the theater of conflict. And it also means that they cannot be even indirectly used for military purposes. Okay, let me give you an example. Earth orbit is not militarized in the sense that you don't have weapons there. You, you don't see conflict in space. You don't see satellites shooting at each other, except for anti-satellite tests, which, are, which is a very bad behavior. 
uh, as you probably might have discussed already in this podcast, and it's anyways concerning destroying one own object, not others' object, right? So there is no military conflict in space, in Earth orbit, but that is used for military purposes. We have military satellites that guide military operations, and you know we've seen that with Starlink, even civil satellites can be used to help and support uh, resistance or military operation. Now, even that is forbidden on the moon. So there can be no military activity whatsoever. This is an absolute principle. There are no exceptions except for those set forth in the treaty itself. And those basically are exceptions that, that tells us that you can use uh, military facilities or military personnel if the purpose is exclusively peaceful. And that rule was laid down because at the time, obviously, the main reason to experiment with space and to fund space, and unfortunately still is for a large part, military activities, right? So it was mostly funded by Department of Defense, by military programs. And the first astronauts were all military people. They were all in the U.S. Army, even though they were serving as civil astronauts, right? So the treaty wanted to make sure that we don't preclude ourselves to use these resources, but they cannot be used for any military purpose. This rule is especially important because it applies also to space resources. It means that all the resources that we find on the moon, and this is my own interpretation uh, in this case, they cannot be used for any military purpose. It means that, in my view, you cannot even bring them on Earth and use them to fabricate weapons, for instance. Right? Let's say that we find a super resistant material in space that is indestructible and it's really good for building uh, weapons or drones or anything like that. In my view, Article 4.2 of the Outer Space Treaty would forbid that because the moon and celestial bodies, including their resources, cannot be used for any military purpose. Um, we have another principle in the Outer Space Treaty that tells you that you shall not harmfully contaminate outer space and that you shall pay due regard in conducting your space activities. It's in Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty, which is the principle of due regard. Uh, and it is a very um, extensive principle, a very complex one. It's the longest article in the treaty. And it is the one that we haven't managed to implement so far. So like most of the other articles of the Outer Space Treaty, they have still been applied one way or the other. The principle of due regard, I mean, it's there. No one denies it. Actually, everybody's trying to find a way to implement it. But if you look at orbit, right, and the problem with space debris, I don't think we can say that space have behaved with due regard to the interests of others or to the interests of future generation, because otherwise we would not have a massive cloud of debris floating in space. Right? So it means basically that before any activity, you should conduct an assessment, how my activity is going to impact uh, the ability of others to conduct their own space activities. And if the answer is, I'm going to prevent them from doing that, then you're not paying due regard. Uh, so it is a problem. And for the moon and for celestial bodies, it's going to be extremely important that we find procedures that we all agree are in compliance with the principle of due regard, because that will that will serve as a measure to demystify operations and to avoid potential conflict. This is kind of my short answer. And I'll give you one example. Uh, let's say that there is a scientific experiment going on on the moon, right? Someone is measuring uh, vibration on the lunar soil to see if the moon is still geologically active, which is a very real scientific question. Uh, and then uh, a starship lands without providing any notice. Now, as you know, probably better than me, because I'm not an engineer, when a big thing like that lands on the moon, given also the mass of the moon and the fact that there is no atmosphere and the planet and the, the celestial body is very small, it will cause a lot of vibrations, right? So it will interfere with the activity that is already happening. So in a sense, if Starship decides to land without consulting first 
with the other party or without giving any notice, without trying to understand what's going to be the implication on the experiment, they, they would be violating the principle of due regard. Another example, think about space resources, right? There is a lot of ice, seem to be a lot of ice on the lunar south pole. If tomorrow they, any country, I, I was about to mention one, but let's not do that. Let's, let's say one country, now, the country of Proclivia, which is a fictional name from the Mumford Lux Moot Court of many years ago. The country of Proclivia gives to one of its uh, commercial companies permission to mine the entire south pole of the moon for 100 years because they are the only one with the technology. Nobody else is going there. The ice... We want to use the eye, so you get permission, you can get it all. I think that would be in violation of your regard, right? Because there is 100 tons and you're taking all of it, and that's not fair. So those are the kind of situation where we will find ourselves uh, in the position to say, are you really considering the position of others or not? And it's a really a case-by-case judgment. There is really no golden rule that here you can, you can take a look and apply. There is no objective measurement, if you wish, that you can consider. But it will have to be assessed on a case-by-case. And it's really about facing others and making sure that your activity is not uh, preventing uh, what others want to do as well. I'm glad you gave that example because that was kind of my next follow-up question, which is the ownership question. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons we're going into outer space right now is because of commercial entities right now, and a lot of space, uh, you know, federal space agencies, at least here in the United States where I'm from, are you know commercializing elsewhere, probably in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess the question really ultimately is when it comes down to that economic idea of ownership, and you know how how is this going to be worked out, I suppose, as far as ownership is concerned? How does that really work out on a practical level? It's a really good question. It's been a question that, you know, scholars have been reflecting and studying for a long time. And now states and policymakers have to figure out an answer in a very short time frame because we do have companies going to the moon as we speak. Obviously, space agencies have already used space resources. So, the simple question, the simple answer is that the principle of non-appropriation, the way it is interpreted right now, uh, it's not covering space resources. It does not forbid the appropriation of space resources. And the, the reason is that the rationale for that principle was not to prevent any appropriation of resources. It was more to prevent colonization, right? If we want to be straightforward, it was to prevent that you go in outer space to extend your own sovereign territory. Like, you know, I've, last week I've been on holidays in the Canary Islands, which is still territory of Spain, but it's definitely not in Spain, right? We don't want something like that in space. It, it happened on Earth. We agreed it was not really ideal. Certainly it was not done in the best way. We don't want to repeat it in space. That's what the non-appropriation principle forbids. At the same time, uh, if you separate something from a celestial body, if you extract it or collect it, then the principle does not apply anymore. It does not prevent appropriation of individual separated resources because the the fact that you're doing that, it's, it doesn't mean that you're colonizing space, right? It means that you're simply making your mission, your space exploration more sustainable because that's the real case scenario that we're going to use space resources for. And if you're going to make money out of it, uh, there is no problem because it's not that the commercialization of space is forbidden. We've been commercializing out of space for the past 50 years. There are companies that make a lot of money because of telecommunications. And, uh, and so by appropriating, to a certain extent, orbits and frequencies, even for a limited amount of time. So we can do the same with space resources. Now, the real question here is, how does this comply, not with the non-appropriation principle, but with the benefit-sharing principle, with the idea that we shall use outer space for the benefit of humankind, and also that we shall use it with due regard? 
I think those are the two different questions that we need to figure it out. Now, in the short-term scenario, we're really talking about small quantities. So in in my case, in my from my opinion, I don't see a legal issue there. You know, if iSpace tomorrow is going to scoop those, you know, those I don't know even how much kilos of lunar regolith uh, and and then put them on a on a place for NASA to collect later on, this is fine. It's not that we are uh, we're not we're not really causing any any issue to others. We're not really excluding others from the benefit of the moon. This is really a small thing. Now, if you ask me in 50 years when we're going to have large-scale operations, then we, we need to find a way to share some of the benefits, which does not necessarily mean sharing monetary benefits because, again, profits are very hard to be made in this endeavor. Probably will take about 50 years to see any profit, but we'll have to think about, okay, what kind of scientific data are we going to acquire when conducting these operations? And how are we going to share them with the rest of the world? Um, how can we make sure that developing countries and emerging space nations can take part in these endeavors? I'm not really a fan of just, you know, doing something and then split uh, with everybody else who has done nothing with it. I am more in favor of capacity building. I think we should use space resources as an opportunity to include countries that would not be able otherwise to conduct their own space programs by having them chiming in in bigger, larger space exploration programs. I do think that that could be a potential solution in the short term. Uh, in the long term, we may also figure it out a governing system, you know, something at the international level that will make sure that the licenses are allocated um, by an international entity and you pay a fee or you pay taxes directly to this entity. And therefore, there is a way to redistribute the benefits. There could be a fund that then could be used to support emerging countries to, to participate in space exploration. But all that, while it makes sense in, in, in the legal viewpoint, it's going to be really in the future. I, I don't see that happening in 10, 20 years. And I don't see the need for that, you know, because, again, there is no profit. We're not going to be at the large scale that would make this reasonable. So, again, in the short term, I think we, we need to figure it out how we can combine this commercial missions with science and with opportunities for capacity building. And then in the long term, international governance will probably be the key to avoid any conflict about appropriation and uh, benefit sharing. So if we look at the way that oil and natural gas has erupted over the last 50 to 70 years, it all started with a singular, very similar framework that a sovereign nation entitled to an X amount of oil field discovery would license to an X company and that X company would have rights. Could this happen in the similar case and scenario that because we don't have any critical rules of engagement for, for this to be executed as yes, we don't know what's out there and what can be extracted, but shouldn't we set up some rules or some modes of or rules of engagement before we get there per se, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. You're saying um, the comparison with oil and gas. Uh, it's good to to keep in mind in the sense that it allows us to reflect on what we don't want to happen, especially from an environmental viewpoint. I would say, at the same time, like I said before, you know, oil and gas it's it's relevant, but it's a very different legal environment, right? As you said, it's territory of a sovereign nation, and then there there is really no way for other states to control what you're doing. In space, there would be a significant difference, which is that even though you have the freedom to explore space, and that freedom includes also the ability to license private companies to do their own activities, the margin of discretion that you have is much more reduced. 
because there is also a significant level of political attention to that, right? Every year, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Use of Space meets, and there are discussions about these issues. And if you would happen to start going beyond what everybody else feels comfortable with, you will be put immediately under scrutiny and under a lot of international pressure. Now, to your point, there should be rules of engagement. Absolutely. And this is something that the international community is already working on, on two different levels. So at the, at the very high level, there is a working group that was created in 2021 in the legal subcommittee of the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Space in Vienna. Uh, and then working group has been entrusted to work on a five-year work plan uh, for the development of an initial set of principles, ensuring that space resource activities are conducted in accordance with international law and in a rational, peaceful, safe, and sustainable manner. And so that working group started um, its, its activities this year in 2022. And by 2026, 2027, it aims to have this set of principles agreed. Now, those will not be legally binding principle because COPUS does not produce any more binding rules. Um, I mean, unless there's going to be a major change in the geopolitical context, but those would be probably endorsed by the General Assembly through a resolution, and they would become like the long-term sustainability guidelines, sort of a benchmark for behavior. And those would allow us to understand what are the main principles that we need to keep in mind when interpreting and applying the aerospace treaty. So those would be very high level. In the meantime, I do see the need also to develop more concrete rules of engagement. How far away you should stay from an ongoing operation? And are you actually entitled to say to somebody, don't come too close because otherwise it's going to be a safety problem? And how are we going to manage that and avoid that this is used to justify indirect appropriation of our space or unacceptable exclusive behaviors? Now, for those rules, Copus is not the right place because Copus works really on a high level and it's a state forum and it's it's very slow also, to be quite frank. So this is why I am personally working on an initiative called Lunar Policy Platform. And the idea of the LPP is exactly to be a forum for the development of these standards of behavior, as we call them, which again are not binding rules. They are voluntary norms, but they would set behavioral expectations and again function as a benchmark for concrete operational issues in um, in conducting lunar operations, including but not limited to space resources. And that requires participation from all stakeholders. So the initiative is targeting states and it's targeting also companies on a primary basis because those would be the two entities with more at stake. But it also involves the perspective of civil society, of indigenous communities, of academics, you know, just to make sure that we really hear all voices and then we can find a synthesis of those voices that will not be perfect, will not be binding, but it will be a start. And then through adaptive governance, we can evolve the set of rules, the one that the LPP develops, as well as the one that the working group will develop in five years. And hopefully in 10, 15 years, we can use them as a basis to negotiate an international instrument. Could you see rules or, or, or behavior that could help you set yourself up for success? I mean, what I'm what I'm trying to understand is that you know, we were very reactive towards what happened within the orbital regime. It was very, very quick, right, um, from 2018. And it, it's only been four years, and we've already proliferated a drastic amount. We saw it coming. Nobody really believed it. But until it actually happened, now we're kind of like we have our back, backs against the wall, and we're trying to be reactive. Could we consider that 
there should be something something that could be temporarily binding uh, as a lot of these existing missions that are taking place. For example, within the next five years, there's supposed to be a, a minimum of approximately 100 missions that are supposed to take off. 100 pieces of equipment, man-made equipment that are supposed to land on the surface of the moon, mm-hmm. right? Why isn't there something temporarily binding for us to consider? And, and Hussein, you, I, I take it you're referring to low Earth orbit and, and the regulation in that area. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. So in the orbital regime, I'm referring to the low Earth orbit, definitely. And But in the cis lunar space, I'm referring to very specifically the surface of the moon. All right. Well, I mean, it's, it's an excellent question, right? Um, we have a lot of missions coming up and the comparison with orbit, it's important because, again, it puts us in perspective. Do we want to repeat the same mistakes? Definitely not. Uh, there are many layers to your questions, though, right? One first layer is that we don't want to be reactive on the moon. We definitely want to be proactive. And the reason is that it's much harder to fix things on the moon than it is on orbit. And it's already very difficult on orbit. It will be very difficult for us to, to, to fix if we make serious damage to the surface of the moon. So there is the interest in being proactive because we, we all know that these rules will be also beneficial to ensure that all the money that you're investing, we're talking about really hundred millions, if not billions of dollars and euros and yens, uh, they are well invested because if you don't rules of engagement and something goes bad, all this money is lost. At the same time, it takes really, really, really a long time to negotiate binding agreements. So something like temporary binding, if you allow me, is like a, a contradiction in terms in the sense that by the time we finish negotiating that, we will not need those rules anymore, probably, or we will need different rules. They might agree on the fact that this is what we should do, that it's very important that everybody tries to abide by it, informal ways of, of saying that these are like the standards, that these are like the criterion to determine if you're at fault and therefore if you're liable. There are many different ways you can phrase that, but nobody will accept to be bound, especially on a temporary basis, because the the purpose of binding rules in international law is to serve for the long term. So unfortunately, I don't think, while creative, I don't think that would be the solution. Um, At the same time, looking at the comparison with orbit, right, uh, the costs are very different. Right now, the reason why we got so much activities on Earth orbit is that it became really cheap to um, to fabricate satellites and to launch them. You know, I think Elon Musk really made a huge difference there with SpaceX. Now, the same may happen, right? If a lunar starship will be able to transport a lot of cargo on the moon, we may find ourselves overflowed by objects on the moon, which is which is true. It's a thing that can happen. But what type of objects are we really talking about? We're talking about things this big, like my water bottle, most likely. It's like cans that contain human remainings or, you know, small rovers that will move for 10 days and then they will die. So we will be overflowed by most likely useless objects. I'm, I'm not too concerned about the real damage that these objects can do to the moon, to the lunar surface, the same way that a constellation of 5,000 satellites can do to low Earth orbit in terms of debris. I'm more concerned about precedence. You know, if we allow all these people to send really useless things on the moon and to leave them there without having to take any measures to remove them or to make space for new things, that's then a bad precedent for the future when we're going to have massive objects, when we're going to have very invasive activities that will say, hey, but you didn't tell anything to this company that left a can on the moon for 20 years. You didn't ask them to pick it up. 
why what do you want from me you already you already established the rule that we don't need to to clean our messes no matter how big or small the rule is the same or should be the same so this is what i'm more concerned of and that's why it's so important that licensing systems from national states have something in place to say you're going to send this thing on the moon what are you going to do about it you know we want you to report we want you to make sure that it's not creating obstacles for other activities and things like that and that will be binding because licensing systems are binding for companies they're not binding for states this means that the bindingness will come at a lower level so a state will not accept to be bound by any rule at this stage beyond what we already have in the outer space treaty but they will have to bind commercial companies because they are obliged by the outer space treaty to make sure that they're authorized and supervised and that happens in contracts that happens in administrative law and all of that is binding so companies will be have will have to respect certain rules that will be mandatory for them the question is which rules are we want them to respect and how do we decide which rules we want to have for companies this is the question we need to answer so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether or not we could encourage companies, commercial companies that are going up there, uh, keeping this framework in mind to encourage them to actually design everything from scratch for demise, right? Exactly. We shouldn't slow down innovation and we shouldn't really kill a market that hasn't even started yet. Um, at the same time, there are ways to make sure that things are designed better. You know, There are ways to make sure that uh, your equipment is not going to be the most uh, degradeful or impactful thing for the lunar environment or for any others. So I say we need to find a sweet spot that goes into encouraging companies, maybe through an incentive structure by saying, you know, if you design something that will dispose itself or that will not be too impactful for the lunar environment, I will give you a, an extra amount of funding, right? I'll give you a bonus or I'll give you another license for a reduced fee, you know, whatever, really, you can think about many solutions. But I think we need to have that mindset from the start that we should make clear to companies, okay, it's a difficult market, okay, it's a new one, but it doesn't mean that you can screw it up. You know, that's, that's what I'm trying to say here. So we need to find a balance making sure that we don't kill, you know, the baby before it's born, but at the same time that we don't end up with a monstrosity in the end just because we didn't have the guts to to make it clear from the beginning because that was that is what happened in low earth orbit. You know, it was so difficult to launch a satellite, why are you even bothering with, with the space debris? And now we have a huge problem. So, we don't want that to happen on the moon because it would be impossible to fix. So we need to think proactively, and I think incentive structures are better. I am much more in favor of saying, if you do this, I'm going to reward you, rather than obliging you to do something that it's probably too expensive for you or that you don't really want to do or something like that, right? So I think in, in licensing systems, something like that should be put in place. And a couple of months ago, the National Space Council in the United States had, I think, three or four public hearings where they invited people and speakers and stakeholders to comment on what licensing system should the United States have in place for, I think they call it novel space activities, including for lunar activities. And, and there they listened to it. And I think a lot of different actors pointed out the need to make sure that we at least begin to think about these this problems. And we, we may have a gradual approach, but we need to have a strategy. So, so it sounds like that you're um, suggesting that license, some kind of licensing agreement uh, is, should be in place for compliance. I guess from there, what would we do should an actor not comply? <laughs> what would be the next step there? Great question. So under Art Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, states are obliged 
to authorize and continuously supervise the activities of their non-governmental entities. This means that these entities, they do not enjoy the freedom to explore space on their own. They only enjoy it on a conditional basis, only if a state gives them permission and to the extent that that state exercises supervision under its own international responsibility. So there is a framework in place that tells every state, you are responsible for what your companies are going to do. So you have to make sure that they comply with the outer space treaty. Now, this is a very good framework to incentivize states to put in place mechanism for compliance because their own international responsibilities at stake. And is this something that states do not like to play with because it is costly and it has a lot of reputational damage. So you don't want to you don't really want to make a bad international incident, especially in a geopolitically sensitive field like outer space. So if I license a company to do X and a company does Z, then as a state, I have I am entitled mostly by law, but by the terms of the license that I, I, I myself design, I am entitled to stop that operation and to sanction that company. So I can say, hey, you got permission to do this. You did this other thing. Now you have to fix it and change it. Otherwise, you will be fined $20 million or you will be forced to stop operations. And most of the times, a state will be able to exercise enforcement measures about it, right? Because you just go to the main office of this company and you shut everything down or you just, you know, seize their funds and make sure they pay. You know, if they are in your jurisdiction, this is perfectly fine. And I'll give you an example, right? A couple of years ago, a company called um, Swarm Technologies wanted to launch a constellation of very small satellites. I think it was nanosatellites uh, called bees. and operate them from the United States. And the U.S. government said no, because they said these objects are too small. We cannot track them. We're not sure where they're going to go once they're in orbit. So you don't have permission to operate them. Uh, so what they did, they went to India and they launched them nevertheless. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then once the FAA and the FCC found out, they said, what are you doing? You know, this is not fine. You're a U.S. company. You have to comply with what you said, with what we told you. So we're going to fine you. I think they fined them for a couple of million dollars. And we're going to stop any operation that you already have. So no license for you anymore in the future. No license to operate this satellite. No license to operate any other satellite you have until you fix this. And then I think a couple of months after... Swarm Technologies complied, and then and then they reached an agreement with the FAA. They apologized. They paid a fine. This will never happen again. So U.S. company sanctioned by the U.S. government, this works just fine. The problem is, if we have a U.S. company that is doing something that Russia thinks is not fine, or that or that China thinks is in violation of international law, or the other way around, you know, an, an Italian company or a Chinese company, uh, and the U.S. government thinks, what are you doing? This is not. We think this is not fine. We think this is in violation of the Outer Space Treaty. That is the problem because you as a government don't have any power to stop directly the the private entity of another jurisdiction. And you don't have any way to force another government to comply with what you think is an interpretation of international law. That is where we lack the enforcement mechanisms. And and again, sorry to come back to my book, but uh, my research that I did was exactly on that. And there is no other... No other researchers as focus on this question, right? What do we do with enforcement of international space law? What are the means that we have available? And the answer is that we don't really have much uh, besides political pressure and besides arbitration. The short answer to this question is, if you think there is going to be, there is a violation by a private companies from another state, 
you as a third state can sue one of these parties in front of an international arbitrator, like the permanent court of arbitration, and, and get a decision there. And that decision will be enforceable because there is a convention called the New York Convention um, that says that international arbitral awards are directly enforceable in all the countries that signed and ratified the convention. And the New York Convention is a very widely ratified international instrument. Basically, all countries in the world have ratified it. So the solution to solve these problems would be, let's have a legal dispute in front of an arbitrator, and then whatever that comes out of that will be enforceable directly by court. So you don't need to go through the government again. The problem is you cannot really force anybody to go to arbitration. You need them to agree on that, right? So the, the step that we need to take, and that is one of the suggestions I have in my book and something that I think uh, the working group on space resources should consider, is that we should all agree and, 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 and abide by the fact that if there is a dispute, we all agree to go to an arbitrator and to respect whatever comes out of it, right? And that should be decided, decided up front. Because if we leave it on a case-by-case, the party that knows that it's at fault will always find an excuse to say, no, I don't want to go to an arbitrator. We'll find another way. So we need to decide right now, this is the temporary binding rule maybe that Usain was talking about. Okay, we don't know what the rules are. We don't have binding rules. But we do agree that if we have a dispute, this is what we do, and this is how we solve it. And we all agree with that. And that will stabilize the uncertainty in the system, in, in my view at least. For international incidents, for not purely national incidents, we don't have a problem. The, the state will make sure that their own companies comply. The problem is when the state is convinced that its companies are doing fine and another state is convinced that they're doing something wrong. And there you have a big issue. I'm, I'm yeah. curious. Kelly? It's sort of a fun, silly question uh, for all those crime junkies out there. Sure. But <laughs> what about on the moon when something happens like a uh, person gets hurt or there's some kind of, even within a nation state um, or in, within a moon village, for example, how is that going to be coordinated? And also, is there an example of that once again that has happened already somewhat on like, say, the International Space Station? Right. So glad you brought that example. And of course, the humanitarian part is an extremely important one. There is an article in the Outer Space Treaty specifically dedicated to the duty that each state has to provide immediate assistance to astronauts in distress in emergency situations, right? This is Article 5 of the Outer Space Treaty. So if someone would be in a dangerous situation on the moon, as much as on celestial bodies, and a state is in the position to intervene and do something, they have to do that. It's binding law. There is no question about it. In principle, this is the solution, the answer to your question. Now, in practice, this very much depends, as you said, was saying before, on the design. Let's say that we go on the moon, we have two bases, a U.S. basis and a Chinese basis, and the airlock systems are completely different, and the suits are completely different, and they're not interoperable. If the Chinese people are running out of air, even if the U.S. wants to help them, if they cannot plug their thing, <laughs> sorry for like being very basic, it will not work. So they will say, sorry, we tried, but we have a different system, and, and then someone can die, and that could be really bad. So what we need to do now is to work for making sure that everything, or at least things that are related to human health and safety on the moon are interoperable to the extent that they are universally interoperable. That requires a lot of coordination on Earth, especially among engineers. That is not happening at the moment. 
So that's something, a critical area that we need to address. There is even an association dedicated to that. I think it's called the International Association for the Advancement of Space Safety. They are a partner to the Lunar Policy Platform, and they brought this as the very first question that they would like us to, to come up with standards of behavior for. They were like, we need to find rules, we need to have models for interoperability, and we need to do it now that we're still designing the system. In 10 years, it will be late. And the International Space Station is a great example of that because right now we do have interoperable standards on the space station. But this happened 20 years after. For a long time, many systems on the ISS were not interoperable and still the docking systems are not interoperable and the water systems are not interoperable. We have a lot of issues. We're doing better, but because the station, the different modules were not designed to be interoperable with each other, we had a lot of problems. So this is something that we need to address today. Now, on the station, they found a way to help each other one way or the other, uh, but the station is very close. You know, It's like a couple of hours uh, when you have like, the right trajectory. So we can, we can intervene and do something. On the moon, it will be a couple of days, and that can make a difference right, in, in someone else's life. So the answer is, legally speaking, you are obliged to intervene. Um, practically speaking, we have not yet implemented the tools that will allow us to to comply with that obligation, and we are in a critical moment to do that. If we miss this five years window, it will be much more difficult later. And then again, you can say that someone violated Article 5, but can you really blame them if no party took action to coordinate these systems, right? So that's why we are in a very difficult situation, not difficult, but a very delicate situation right now to make sure that we, we put in place the tools from an engineering viewpoint that will allow us to comply with fundamental legal obligations for the protection of human life and health. So, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sure that I stay on the topic because I think you hit a, hit something very interesting in terms of, you know, building something a little bit more comprehensive um, in relation to building interoperability and establishing sort of a ground and framework for everybody to be a bit more cooperative and collaborative as we, as we sort of look towards getting to the moon, you know, what do you think that could be more of a comprehensive legal framework that could work uh, within within the international body per se? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, it allows me also to tag along with something that I really wanted to mention during that conversation, which is a work that uh, me and other um, 13 colleagues have done in the Space Generation Advisory Council, right? So in 2020, during the pandemics, we gathered a group to develop the position of the young generation on lunar governance. And we look at a number of issues, including interoperability, and we look at how we as a young generation, we want the moon to be governed in, in the future and what kind of instruments we can imagine to be fit for that purpose. Um, and after a, an year of work and about 34 interviews with different stakeholders, ranging from space agencies, companies, experts, civil society, we came up with the idea of a lunar governance charter which would be a middle ground instrument, which would not be binding per se, but would be comprehensive and solemn enough for everybody to make a commitment towards it. And this idea of a lunar governance charter, it, you can find it in the Eagle Report, which is available online on the SGC website. Um, and it has been endorsed by SGC as a whole. So it was not just the opinion of a small group of you know, young researchers. It is the opinion of the organization representing the youth in space. This was the first time that SGC did something like that. 
and we presented it to the United Nations for consideration. Now, then again, uh, whether or not this will be negotiable in a short time frame, I'm a little bit skeptical, but I do see something like that as a possible solution. So a framework that is comprehensive enough, uh, not too detailed, and that it's not binding, but solemn, something that everybody feels attached to, that understands the importance of complying with. And now, um, this, this is the long-term goal. In the meantime, we'll need to work separately on each of the issues to make sure that you know, we can get in the solutions in place. And I also want to mention that this, a similar idea has been launched last June by the King of England, uh, Charles, at the time, Prince Charles, he has this idea of an astrocarta that would not be specifically for the moon, as the one that we imagine in SGC, but would serve as a sort of solemn commitment on how do we conduct activities in space in a responsible and sustainable manner. So I think the idea of a charter is very fascinating for me as a space lawyer, because also if you look at the way we developed international space law, there is a 20 years mark uh, that defined the type of instrument we had. So for the first 20 years, we got treaties from the 50s to the 70s. Then we got principles, um, uh, like, for instance, the remote sensing principles or the benefit sharing principles. And then from 20, from the 2000s to 2020, we got guidelines, right? We have the space debris mitigation guidelines. We have the long-term sustainability guidelines. So what's going to be from 2020 to 2040? And I would really hope it can be charters, you know, because it's something that uh, that will give new energy to international space law. And that will probably be that sweet spot that we need in between regulation, but also not too many constraints. So I would say, yes, it's a it's a procession towards less strong legally legal instruments. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that they're not effective as much. Um, and it makes sense. It, it, like I said, we cannot go on forever with treaties because they take a long time to be negotiated. And because of the legally bindingness, they will be very high level all the time. Uh, but with these instruments, we, we have more flexibility. We can update them. So we can also create better rules because if in five years we realize that a certain principle that we have in the charter doesn't make sense anymore, we can update it. Whereas to amend an international treaty, you know, forget about it. It's not happening. It's too complicated. It requires the approval of all the parties that ratified the treaty. It's going to be there forever. So I think it's a good progression. I, I had some last minute questions here. Um, I'll try to combine them together because I know time is running out too. But um, I'm curious right now, we ask the question is, who is we? And we hear this often, like the moon should be for all humankind and should be open for all nations on the planet earth um which sounds really fantastic except you know how things have played out on earth it doesn't always feel that every nation is is you know getting the best advantage of all all for all of humanity <laughs> and we've had lots of problems obviously and historically on earth about resource use um not just you know the fact that we're not always being environmentally correct but also you know taking resources from other nation states so the big question for me is kind of a more philosophical question is, you know, you know, does the moon and all of its resources actually be belong to humanity? And secondly, then, you know, who is this humanity, but also in a really practical way, who are these main players that are really, you know, group of nation states that are going to be there that are really going to have to be complying with some of these ideas? That's a lot of questions in one big last <laughs> question. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll try to be brief, but also to, to give you satisfaction and try to go into the specifics of your question, because it's also very fascinating, right? 
So first of all, legally speaking, um, the moon does not really belong to all of humanity, right? The legal status of a global common uh, does not entail that. It entails that it's an area that we share, but that doesn't mean that legally you have a right to it, like a right to own it. Because like I said, nobody owns it. So we cannot really talk about who does it belong to because no one owns it. At the same time, because of that, it's a shared environment that we all need to share. This is from a legal viewpoint, even more so from an economic viewpoint in the sense that there is no obligation to distribute money that you make out of space with everybody else. And we saw that already in low Earth orbit. From a philosophical viewpoint, I do believe that the moon belongs to all of us, you know, spiritually for sure, culturally, uh, and even maybe scientifically. So I do think that we have for sure a moral obligation to make sure that the, that we do not use the legal framework uh, to um, to ruin that. And I, I'll give you one example. There are a lot of communities on Earth which really uh, look at the moon uh, in a very spiritual way, even as a goddess. You know, there are indigenous communities uh, in, in Canada, but also in, in Australia, in New Zealand, that do really look at the moon as, as something very sacred that they don't really want to be uh, to be damaged to be to mess to be messed up with uh, so we need to bring those voices in the conversation i'm not sure we will be able to really achieve what they want us because it will be basically probably doing nothing but i'm not even sure because we never heard from these voices so the first step is really making sure that we bring opportunities for all these actors to to speak and that also ties into the second part of your question, which is like, who are the stakeholders? Traditionally, the answer would be states, so governments and space agencies, and then companies. Those still remain the primary stakeholders because those are the people who are paying to go to the moon, who are putting infrastructure, who are investing their money and time and resources into, into doing something there. At the same time, we are enlarging the pool of stakeholders that should be involved because of this philosophical assumption that we're all in this together, that the moon culturally and, and spiritually really belongs to all of us beyond the legal framework. And those other stakeholders for me are other international organizations. So organizations that bring, for instance, Coast Park, right? That bring the scientific perspective into it. Um, and then also non-governmental entities that represent the viewpoint of a sector of human of, of a section of humankind that has something to say about it. They may not have like, again, uh, ownership, legal ownership. They may not have anything on the moon, but they do have something to say about it. Uh, and there is, for instance, you know, for all moonkind, which represents the view of those who believe that there is cultural heritage on the moon and we need to preserve it. And SJC is another organization, you know, representing the viewpoint of the young generation, which again, do not have a legal right, but certainly morally and ethically, they do, we do, I'm in the co-chair now of SGC, so I should really say we, we do have something to say and we do, we are entitled to express our voice and to have it heard because whatever we're going to do on the moon, we as a young generation are going to inherit it. And so we need to involve these kind of stakeholders. Then beyond that, it's scientific experts that have expert opinion, that have something that nobody else has, which is technical knowledge. And we do need to bring those voices again. So the difficult part is to find a place that they can all interact together somehow, because the United Nations is not the place for that, because it is only open to states. And everybody else is an observer that is not entitled to really speak unless 
there is really like a state inviting it or unless there is really like time for everybody else to speak. That's why with Open Lunar, and I should mention the Open Lunar Foundation as being another entity that is trying to bring that collective perspective into lunar discussion. With Open Lunar, we are supporting the development of this lunar policy platform. And Moon Dialogues has been a great experiment as a place for different voices to be heard and for different opinions to be leveraged and to be discussed as a community. I think during COVID times, Moon Dialogues was extremely successful because of that, because it was like a monthly appointment where you could hear from all the different voices. So the primary voices, we heard from NASA, we even heard from China, but you also heard from people that, that specialize in a very specific um, sector like indigenous communities or that specialize on scientific effects or engineering. So that thing was a demonstration of the importance of, of the richness of the deep that we can have. And I also want to mention that Mondelos recently produced a lunar policy handbook that has a sort of foundational assessment of what are the main questions that we need to solve to enable safe and sustainable and prosperous activities on the moon. And then again, that was done as a really collective effort, including Open Lunar, SGC, Secure World Foundation, uh, Arizona State University uh, for All Moonkind, and MIT uh, Media Lab Space Exploration Initiative. Uh, and then in the future, I hope Moon Dialogues will will be, uh, let's say, complemented by what we're trying to do with the Lunar Policy Platform on a more operational level. Now, into your question about uh, can we apply the model of property rights as we have it on Earth in space, um, I'm not sure. And I maybe I don't think so. You know, That's why a conference like the Commons in Space Conference is such an interesting place, because then we can have engagement between the space law community and the Commons community, and then try to learn from experiences on Earth with other models of managing resources. You know, Kelly mentioned that, you know, the most ancient community on Earth, on Earth doesn't have individual property rights, but they have common property. And I think that's something we should keep in mind. There are many different options that we have on the table, and we need to demystify this obsession we have with private property, as if it was the panacea uh, to all evils, or if it was really embedded in human behavior. I do think it's very important, and historically, that's played a great role in fostering development and innovation. And in the capitalist model, it is really the golden rule. But I think in space, we have the opportunity to maybe temper it. I'm not saying we should abandon it entirely, but we we can model it to a different to a different environment and a different system. And my proposal for that is really to focus on the concept of use rights rather than property rights, because again. Property as such in space will be very difficult to establish because property means exclusivity. It means that you have full control, that you can kick everybody out. That's not happening on, on the moon, and I hope it will never happen, right? Certainly not happening with the current system we have in place. And some people uh, argue that we should abandon the system we have in place because it's not compatible with property rights. And I think that's a big mistake because the, the only reason why space has remained peaceful and has managed to prosper as a flourishing economy, it's because of that, I think. Otherwise, we would have really ended up with a lot of conflict and tensions and maybe we would have weaponized space and then nobody would have made advantage of it. So I do think that we should stick to the non-appropriation principle. We should stick to space as a global, legally global common but at the same time, find creative ways to reinterpret property rights in a way that serves the purpose. At the end of the day, what do we want to achieve in space? I think that's really the question. We want to have a society develop in space. Let, let us imagine that society in the way that fits better the space environment, rather than trying to obsessively replicate models that we're comfortable with on Earth. So use rights could be a start. 
Um, and then I, the idea of common pool resources, which has been discussed extensively at the Common in Space Conference, is another one that we should experiment. And then hopefully merging these different theories into a new one and, and then apply it on, on, on space. The good news is that we have time. You know, We have time because, like I said, the technology, the cost will not allow us to have large-scale operations on the moon to extract resources in the way that it could become concerning. But we need to be very mindful about precedents. So like I said, even small things can create damage later on. So we need to say what we're doing now, it's not the main rule. We are experimenting with it. We will see if it works. And we will be open about changing it. And then we can evolve in time. You know, your PhD, um, the multi-level governance of space mining, you defended it a month ago. It's a big milestone for you. So congratulations. Thank you. On that. You know, what did you find to be the most difficult thing to overcome and who supported you along the way? And and why have you made a pivot to space legal? <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's a very interesting question and a hard one to answer in the short time that we have. Uh, I think during, during my PhD, uh, the most difficult part for me personally was to really narrow down the scope of my research and and focus on those two, three questions that are the fundamental ones. And so like identifying what would be the priority issues that we need to focus on at the moment to, to have a meaningful discussion, that was the biggest challenge. And I think my supervisor, Professor Maulena Hoffman, and my colleagues, um, you know, Gabriel Leter um, and others from the University of Luxembourg, as well as my friends, like Juliana Rotola and, and everybody else at SJC and ISU, they really helped me out with that, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, because by listening to people, you really see what are the things that we need to focus on. And for instance, I'll tell you that originally my enforcement chapter was supposed to be like double the size because I really wanted to experiment and think about how do we actually enforce um, rules in place on the moon because there is no possibility to exercise the use of force. There is no sovereign nation. So can it be police on the moon kicking you out of a mining site if you are trespassing or, you know, sanctioning your bad behavior in place. Can we do something like that? I would have loved to research on it and, and to think about it, but one of my committee members said, you know, is this really like the first thing we need to solve? And the answer is no, because it's going to happen maybe in 100 years. It's going to be a more expanse type of problem. So I had to let it go. That was the most difficult part um, for me, and I'm glad that I was surrounded by very smart people that made me think about, okay, where is the most impactful that I can talk about? And that can be helpful for others to then make their own thinking about more future or second layer type of uh, issues that we need to solve. And that's why you see that my, my thesis and my book that came out a month ago now really stays at the foundation. It gives you a comprehensive overview. It gives you like a, an overview of the principles. It tells you what are the challenges in implementing this principle, but it doesn't go too detailed because I think it's for others to do that, maybe for me in the future as well, but it was a start. It will give you a, a map to tell you, okay, those are the most important ones. Those are the starting points that we have to address them. And now let's actually get to work and, and answer them. And um, I guess for my last question, it's a question that we ask every single one of our guests. Why do you think that humanity should continue to move forward in space and you know <laughs> space forward well that's a that's a very interesting question right um i actually i'm glad you asked this because i had um so when i did the space studies program in isu in strasbourg this was my um 
my individual project for the science department. It was to, to reflect about uh, whether or not we should uh, become a multiplanetary species, as Elon Musk would, would put it. And there are several sub-questions to that, right? Is it possible? Is it legal? Is it economic? But it really comes to the point of should we do it or not? And generally speaking, there are two schools of thoughts about it. One is this uh, cosmism, and, and the other one is more like a, an anthropocentric view. And, and, and one of them be, believes in the idea that we are destined to, uh, to explore space, you know, that it is, it is in our DNA to continue to expand and to enlarge our perspective to go somewhere else. And the other current says, uh, well, actually, no, because space is much bigger than us. The universe is much bigger. So we should be more mindful and we should be also limiting ourselves not to, some people say not to screw up other planets or the rest of space. Uh, I have to say, without disrespecting the second view, being mindful of the fact that we are not the owner of the universe, we are not the master of the universe, I do believe that we should expand because I do think that maybe that's the one thing that we have in our DNA, to, to really expand and to go forward. It's really in the history of humanity to, to, go, to go beyond, to go forward, and, and to settle into hostile places that we manage to make our own. So for me, it's something that we cannot avoid. It's really in our nature. Uh, at the same time, I do not think we should pursue that at all costs. So I want to sit down and reflect on what's going to be the impact of that on ourselves. What are we willing to trade in order to be able to expand in the universe and to explore? And second, what's going to be the impact on other forms of life on, and even on not, not typical life that we may consider, even just on inhabited planets? Can we just do whatever because they don't have life? Like I think we should reflect on this and put ourselves on boundaries. But fundamentally, I think we are destined to go forward. And, and that is why I wanted to, to work in space law, you know, to, to help humanity move forward in the right direction, which I think it's, it's a direction based on the rule of law and on systems that allow us to cooperate with each other rather than to, to conflict with each other. I, I was about to say compete. I think a certain degree of competition is good, but we should keep in mind that if we are to succeed in space, we are, we are to do it together. And hopefully that ties in again with that, who is we question. I think in 50 years time, technology permitting, we will really be able to have a humanity viewpoint in space. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day and sharing your thoughts with us and obviously sharing your expertise. And uh, hopefully we'll love to have you on one more time. Yeah, thank you so very much. It was really a fun conversation. You had really amazing questions. And I, uh, I'm i sorry, like, we didn't get more time to dive really deeply into you them. You can come back but... next time and uh, talk about your moon police. <laughs> you know, how to do it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Uh, if you're still listening, a word from your sponsors, which... Which is essentially us. Our team works really hard... To bring you these enlightening conversations about... About the future of space exploration. And yes, you are vital for fueling our podcast and making sure that we don't disintegrate into the vacuum of, of outer space. So if you like Space Forward... Give us a thumbs up. And if you, and if love, you love Space, space Forward, Forward... Well, then share that love and recommend this podcast to a friend. To a friend. Watch out for more upcoming episodes featuring Kara Kunzman from the Aerospace Corporation. We get the lowdown on strategizing long-term planning, aka foresight, in the space domain. 
Also a lively discussion with team members from the Tumbleweed Mission who are designing wind-driven rovers to explore Mars. And Solange Massa, who talks to us about applying her innovative organs-on-a-chip technology for medical research on Earth and in space. <laughs> 